Welcome to the Relatively Damaged Podcast by Damaged Parents, where devilish, hungry, depressed people come to learn maybe, just maybe, we're all a little bit damaged. Someone once told me it's safe to assume 50% of the people I meet are struggling and feel wounded in some way. I would venture to say it's closer to 100%. Every one of us is either currently struggling or has struggled with something that made us feel less than... Like we aren't good enough, we aren't capable, we are relatively damaged, and that's what we're here to talk about. In my ongoing investigation of the damaged self, I want to better understand how others view their own challenges. Maybe it's not so much about the damage, maybe it's about our perception and how we deal with it. There is a deep commitment to becoming who we are meant to be. How do you do that? How do you find balance after a damaging experience? My hero is the damaged person, the one who faces seemingly insurmountable odds to come out on the other side whole. Those who stare directly into the face of adversity with unyielding persistence to discover their purpose. These are the people who inspire me to be more fully me. Not in spite of my trials, but because of them. Let's hear from another hero. Today's topic includes sensitive material which may not be appropriate for children. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended as advice. The opinions expressed here were strictly those of the person who gave them. Today we're going to talk with Nath Bry. He has many roles in his life, father, son, brother, author, and more. We'll talk about how he struggled with mental illness and how he found health and healing. Let's talk. If you want to share your relatively damaged story of struggle and how you found hope, visit us at damagedparents.com and complete the contact form. Welcome, Nath Bry, to Relatively Damaged by Damaged Parents. You are a demon child taken from your family at five seasons of age and thrust into a life of slavery. What is that about? No, I'm just kidding. I know that's your book. (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. How did you end up writing Slave Boy, and here you struggle with a a mental illness. I'm wondering how much of that is tied into when you write, if some of your personality sneaks into that. All of my personality sneaks into it. But I do videos on my Instagram called Sharing the Journey because I want to be an author that people have access to. And the Sharing the Journey videos are about my emotions while I'm writing, plots, stuff like that. And the four main characters in Slave Boy are all different aspects of me if that makes sense, like little tidbits. If you've read the book, you'll think, oh, really? Because there's some pretty psychotic behavior, obviously exaggerated for the book, but all of my emotion goes into my writing. I don't know how to write any other way. So, yeah. So even fictionally utilizing the different parts of yourself to create characters Mm. has, has actually, it sounds like it's helped you more than anything. It has. I mean, a lot of different authors, a lot of different writers, they all do it different ways. And yet, like other authors, I use people around me for characters as well. But a lot of the inspiration for the characters comes from inside, comes from me, different aspects of me. And so let's talk a little bit. You wanted to come on and talk about your struggle. That's what this podcast is about, the struggle. It sounds like you've had more than one, (laughs) even as I was reading over your one sheet just that it's been a process for you throughout that you were in stand-up comedy you were getting ready to write a one-hour 
stand-up comedy show mm -hmm. and couldn't get into it and then started writing. I mean, and you can start your struggle wherever it starts for you. I would like to understand what happened there at some point. I mean, the struggle for mental health has kind of been off and on from an early age, but it wasn't until early 30s that I reckon it was pointed out to me how you have mental health problems. And until you know, you're like, why am I like this? Is everyone like this? I'm sure everyone can identify with that when you're going through those struggles. Is it just me that's going through this or is it everybody? And then at the time I had a partner and she pointed out, hey, you've, you've got mental health issues. You need to go get it sorted. And that was the first step to recognizing where I'm at and who I am. Um, with the comedy thing, I'd done comedy for three years at that stage. I was what we call an open micer. So hitting all the open mics, I'd had a few paid spots, a few paid MC spots. And then in New Zealand, it's the natural progression. Okay, now it's time for our show. Um, we're very lucky in New Zealand. We have a lot of fringe festivals, which are arts festivals, everything from poetry to comedy, everything. As so the New Zealand comedians will write in our show, and then hit six or seven of these fringe festivals within the year, and that's how you get going. And that's where I was at. But New Zealand went into lockdown for COVID, March 2020. And I'm like, right, I've got some time off now. Let's write this our show. Yeah. I just couldn't face it. I'm just like, look, you know what? I'm just over it at the moment. And I'd always written stories in some way or another. So I was like, I'm going to start writing stories. My first book, Slave Boy, was born. And I haven't looked back. Yeah. Did you have the idea in your mind? I mean, when I'm yes. thinking it demon child and i mean how long had this idea been brewing for you quite a while as a little child i didn't like going to bed most of us didn't you know it's not like your parents are saying go to bed and get some sleep as little kids we hear go lie in a dark room for eight hours so what i used to do as a little kid is i'd build stuff in my head as i'm drifting off to sleep to make it fun as a little kid it was i'd convert dad's car into a rocket ship stuff like that just to get the imagination firing and then as you grow older those things you're building in your head change a bit when i got to my late 20s i started building dream homes and log cabins in my head it was the detail of where every stud every beam went that got me to sleep got to my late 30s and I, I branched out i built a medieval church then a village surrounding the medieval church then a city surrounding the village in a country i populated it with people i started doing storylines for all these people and politics and that's where the story came from to be honest, the story I had in my head was actually book four in the series. Oh, so wow. I had to write one, two, three to get to four. So four was kind of already written in my head. I know exactly where that's going, but I had to go for the first three first. That's amazing. And so it sounds like it was very natural for you to build these ideas in your mind. And what was it like putting them to words? That can be a struggle. Like it's funny, I've book two in the series is currently at the proofreaders. And this week I'm about to start on book three. And I had a one-on-one -on -one session with my author coach yesterday. And she said to me, she knows when I'm in my flow state because there's quite a few grammatical errors, spelling errors. She knows I'm just typing furiously. It's pretty natural getting those ideas down. But don't get me wrong, sometimes it can be a struggle to get what's in here in your head onto paper. Yeah. What do you do when you're in that struggle? Do you get frustrated? I mean, what happens inside of you? Is it, what is the, the feeling and how do you overcome it? It's it's not frustration because I know the sign. It's like I'm struggling to get it onto paper. So usually I'll stop, lie my bed, put some headphones on with music, just relax and then get back into it. Or I'll skip out that part and jump a paragraph or two ahead and then come back to it. Just depends how I'm feeling at the time because generally speaking, when I'm in that flow state, I don't want to stop. just want to keep yeah. going while it's coming. Right, right. Okay, so... 
and I know we're jumping around a little bit. I just want to go back to the mental health struggle. This is just the way I am. Sometimes I tell you the mental health struggle when your girlfriend, I think you said, came to you and said, you've got some things you need to get sorted. Yeah. How did that feel? Were you able to, was it said in a way that you were able to go, oh yeah, maybe, or what happened? Well, it was, it was actually, sorry, my second wife, it was, uh, Christine, okay. we're still very good friends, although we're not together anymore. When she sat me down and told me I wasn't angry, I wasn't upset, I was just like, yeah, that makes sense. It, it was like a light went on, I was like, okay, I need to go and, and get this checked out. Lucky I was with a company that gave free counselling sessions. So mm-hmm. I went and had a couple with a, a counsellor and he pointed some things out. I got back from those sessions and it's like, this makes so much sense. You know, why didn't I do this 15 years ago? I mean, I'm not sure what it's like where you are, but in New Zealand, we've got a a very good push through the media and through the government's paying for television ads about men reaching out for help. We have one of the highest suicide rates in the developed world for males aged 16 to 25 per head per capita. It's just because of our culture. You know, men are supposed to be tough. You don't need help. And our government and different health authorities, we're all trying to say to guys, you're struggling, ask for help. And it's brilliant. It's now the stage in New Zealand where we can, we feel comfortable asking for help and it's getting easier and easier. So I have, I think I saw a movie. Well, no, I know I saw a movie. (laughs) So there is a movie, The Mask You Live In, which is specific to men and boys. And one of the most interesting statistics that I gained from that is that emotionally speaking, men and women are 90% the same. Now, Knowing that, being that you're a man, I'm a woman, we're having this conversation. I don't think, did you know that, first of all? And if you didn't, okay, you didn't. And then what does that make you think about mental health, though, when you know that statistic? Or what does that make you think about men and women? It's hard to say. I mean, it's it makes sense. I think it's because it's hard to answer that for me, because obviously being a guy, I'm wrapped up in my guy emotions. It doesn't mean I don't sympathize with women or empathize, but it's just, it's hard to relate to their struggle when I'm not a woman, if that makes sense. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm fortunate that I am surrounded by a lot of people that have mental illness. We seem to draw each other together as a little support network. Um, And they're women, men, non-binary gender as well. And you're right, the experiences are very, very, very similar, if not exactly the same in some cases. I'm thinking of a friend of mine because I'm an overthinker that's part of the parcel of being an author great for imagination when you're writing stories or writing jokes not so good when you are trying to deal with situations your brain's going a million miles a minute and you're coming up with probably multiple solutions for one problem yeah my my head plays scenarios like it's i never realized until my late 30s that you're like if i'm going through a hard time or maybe i'm just doing a job at work that doesn't need a lot of brain processing power my brain will start running off in scenarios and overthinking on anything that's happened in the last 30 years. And if you're not careful, that can catch you out. And all of a sudden, your subconscious thinks, okay, these are not scenarios. This is actually what happened. And you're down the dumps and depressed. But now I know about this. When it starts happening, I now have the tools in place where I can stop it um, and focus on something more positive or blank the mind or do different little exercises where I can focus on what I'm doing and stop that overthinking. It doesn't mean that... You win the battle every day because every day is a new battle. But now that I have the knowledge and the tools in place, it's a lot easier than it was, say, 15 years ago. Yeah. And I think I I just want to investigate this with you as far as gender dynamics and things like that. For me, 
as a female hearing that statistic, I'm like, oh, wow, they're a lot closer to me than I realize as far as men, because that wasn't my perception before. My perception was that men didn't have emotions. Men didn't struggle with things like depression or anxiety. And when I heard that statistic and I thought, oh my gosh, we're only 10% different when it comes to emotions. Wow. I bet they feel a lot of the same things as I do. And I'm wondering from your perspective as a man coming from that social perspective of the man needs to be the man and the woman needs to be the woman in this very tough environment that you said you were coming from in New Zealand, very independent, you've got to be Mm -hmm. strong that, well, let me just say it. If when you hear that you go, Oh yeah, maybe so. I'm not sure. Mm. Or if it's more of a, I don't want to be seen as a emotional female. (laughs) (laughs) Luckily, that stigma around mental illness has fallen away in New Zealand. Don't get me wrong, I'm sure there's still people out there who won't ask for help because they're afraid. But as I said, we're very fortunate. The stigma's dropped away. And in New Zealand now, it's okay to ask for help. It's a lot easier. There's a lot more avenues. And Mm. it's it's not the emotion and the struggle with that emotion is not now just a female thing. It is just a human thing. Correct. That's fantastic. I I love to hear that. You know, you said on here, you're the first born. Do you think that had anything to do with the struggles you faced as an overthinker or the way you were viewed and grew up that had anything on your struggle? No, I mean, my sibling situation is complicated. I'd have to draw you a family tree to show you how my siblings works. Basically, my mother and my father had me and then split. And then my mum met my stepdad. And he already had a son from a previous marriage. So he was my older brother, but he was 10 years older than me. My mum and my stepdad had another child, my little mm-hmm. sister. But there was 10 years either side. So my brother was 10 years older than me. My little sister's 10 years younger. So it's kind of almost a generation. It's quite a big step. And as a kid, even though I was very extroverted, I was also very introverted. Like I look back on my childhood and some of my favorite memories with me sitting in my room by myself playing with toys, you know, because that was my time out and I loved it. And I said that to a friend the other day and he's like, well, when you're not out playing with other kids, it's like, well, yeah, I did, but I really enjoyed sitting in my room playing with toys by myself. But from that aspect, no, that didn't really have anything to do with the overthinking. I'm just trying to think when it started, it was always there as long as I could remember. Right back from an early, you know, five and six years of age at primary school, the brain was always overthinking everything. I just didn't know it back then. I just thought that was me, part of life. Everyone did it. Right. Isn't that fascinating? I love how you said that because the way I think the assumption is you think the same thing too, whether we realize it or not, right? The Mm. assumption is that everyone else is thinking what I'm thinking. And it sounds like you did that too for quite some time. Mm. And was it only after you you went and investigated and and spoke with a therapist that you figured out you had done that? Yeah. I mean, I was... the time when I went and seeked help, I was a postal worker. And the postal workers in New Zealand are a little bit different. In those days, we had push bikes, not walking like I think they do in the US. And it's a lot of free time for the mind because you're physically, you're reading letters, you put them in a letterbox, and it's a lot physical and the mind's dormant. And in that job, there is too much time to think, just like a lot of other jobs in the world where it's just your brain's not being used a lot. And that was a struggle. That was when it came to the pinnacle for me, where I think I, one day I'd been, the brain was going you know, a mile a minute, as we say here in New Zealand, and it was getting me down. And I got to the stage where I was sitting in the gutter crying. And then I stopped and I'm like, this is not normal. And that's when my wife at the time, Christine, said, 
got to get help. And so I did. And then that therapist, I had a few sessions with him and other therapists, and they just pointed out things that like made sense to me. The first therapist, after I told him about my story, he interrupted me and said, you've got a fear of abandonment and betrayal. And I thought about that in the session and thought, yeah, yeah, I do. And I'd never realized that about myself. And my brother, older brother, he was the manager at my postal branch and he directed me onto the therapist. And I got back the next morning and told him, he's like, oh, what do you have to say? And I said, oh, apparently I've got a fear of abandonment. And my big brother's like, yeah, that makes sense. Oh, wow. How so validating. It was. But yeah, it's, as I said, until I reached out and asked for help with the help of my then wife. Before that, it was just everything was a mess. I didn't know what was going on. I just knew things went right. So how, once you recognize the fear of abandonment and that mm. those things, how do you move forward? Was it, I'm thinking slow like molasses, but beyond that, what were some of the steps that you took? It's For me, it was learning to trust people, which is not easy when you have a fear of betrayal or a fear of abandonment. That's Learning to trust people is really, really hard. That is why, like since then, my circle of friends has always been very small. I only usually in life have a, a close circle of maybe three or four really best friends that I spend most of my time with. And then I have a wider circle, but I don't, you know what I mean? Like I just focus on that inner circle because energy-wise, it's easier for me. We're all busy people and I don't like friendships falling by the wayside, so to speak. But having a smaller circle makes it easier for that when you've got a fear of abandonment. Telling your friends and your family that I fear being betrayed, I fear being abandoned or left out. Once you've told them, I mean, it doesn't mean they've got to cater for you all the time, but they know. So it can be in the back of their mind that will Nathan see this as betrayal. Not that it's their burden to bear, but, you know, your friends and family need to know. It sounds like telling them helps engage them, though, in the conversation. It does. Of who you are. And because I'm thinking if you don't tell them, then you might be pretending that you don't have those challenges. And then you might have expectations. And then they fail those expectations. I mean, I'm just kind of going down the rabbit hole of what the thought yeah. process might be. Was that what you experienced or was it something no, different? Like for, say, for an example, there was a New Year's Eve, maybe 10 years ago. I was living with my best friend and his partner, and we'd planned a New Year's Eve together because it was New Year's Eve, and we're going to go out partying. And I was in one of my overthinking. My brain was off. And it was it's my overthinking is very much like movies playing in my head. Um, so the brain's throwing all these scenarios at you and telling you all these horrible things about your two best friends. Oh, they're not going to have fun with you. They're going to leave you in a bar by yourself, and, and the brain's off. Okay. And it got so bad that I had another friend and I said, hey, what are you doing for New Year's? He's like, oh, we're doing this? Cool. And I left my two best friends for New Year's and went and hung with him because I couldn't deal with those emotions. Okay, it had got to me because at that stage I didn't know what was going on. And that's for me going down the rabbit hole is that anxiety, that fear of abandonment is now ruling my life and making decisions for me. So that's why it was so important to get the tools and the knowledge of your triggers and how to deal with them, if that makes sense. I think what I hear you saying is with the idea of going to the bar with the other friends, while great, also led to these ideas because your brain took off and you told yourself these stories that you were going to be left, they were going to be, yeah. they were going to disappear. So then it became safer to go out with your Correct. other friend. So Correct. then the fear was driving the decision. So you really yes. wanted to go out with them, but the fear was so much. So let's say that same scenario or a similar scenario happens today. What do you do for you? 
I blank my mind, first off. Also, I have little rituals I do every morning now, especially on the way to work. I have an imaginary car dashboard in my head with a whole lot of buttons and switches. Um, and on the way to work every morning, the top lines, all the negative stuff, I turn off all the switches. And the bottom lines, all the positive, and I turn on all the switches. So that starts the day. And if I get to the stage where I'm in that fear again, or there's a scenario coming up and I'm feeling uncomfortable with, I'll go back. Has that switch turned itself back on by any chance? Yes, it has. Turn it off again. And that's a really useful tool for me. It's a visualization. Or, I mean, another way I deal with it is I just tell my brain, no, we're not doing this today. Yeah. Okay. I uh, like the idea of a dashboard. I'm seeing, I'm, I'm picturing in my mind this very real dashboard and I'm trying to identify maybe some of the switches that you have on there. Is it like anger yep. and fear or abandonment? The first one's anxiety. Second one's depression. The third one is overthinking and scenarios. The fourth one is trust issues. I have a new partner and it's amazing. We've only been together about a month now and she's absolutely amazing. Um, so turn off trust issues for there and yeah, that kind of negative thing. And then the positive stuff is you know good work attitude. Hard worker, don't stop. Friendly and bubbly to everybody. Make jokes and I go through the positive. That's why I end on the positive because it's important okay. to end on that positive for me. But that's just one of the tools I do every day. So if a scenario came up that you suggested, I'll check the switches. I'll tell the brain, no, we're not doing this today. Sometimes if it's really bad, I may need to lie in my bed or wherever and listen to music for five to 10 minutes just to calm down a bit. And then we go, we run with it. I won't let that fear drive me away from what I want to achieve or what I want to do. So it sounds like to me, you really have to, on a regular basis, turn off those switches and mm -hmm. i'm trying to think of how when you're like you said with the relationship the trust you have to turn that negative side of that off and is it scary to turn that switch off <laughs> i know no. i'm kind of chuckling about that but if you want to share your relatively damaged story of struggle and how you found hope Visit us at damagedparents.com and complete the contact form. So it sounds like to me, you really have to, on a regular basis, turn off those switches. And mm -hmm. I'm trying to think of how, when you're, like you said, with the relationship, the trust, you have to turn that negative side of that off. And is it scary to turn that switch off <laughs> i know no, i'm kind of chuckling about that but i'm very lucky that i've known this woman since we were teenagers and when i was telling her about my mental health issues she said to me i've got you and that was in the first week see so every time i turn that switch off i'm visualizing her saying to me i've got you and just those three words is so empowering and i have never trusted anyone in a relationship the way i trust my current partner, it's the trust is just there and it has been. Doesn't mean I don't have to stop negative thoughts, but as I said, every time I think of that, when she said to me, I've got you, a lot of that floats away and drifts away. Okay, so it sounds like maybe what I misunderstood. So it's more like when you're away from her and those thoughts are running away Correct. and you're having to turn off that switch. Yes. And I'm also wondering, how did you learn to listen to what she did and not to what she said, if you will? Because I'm, I'm assuming if you've got that betrayal and abandonment, you've had to learn to listen to behavior. Does that make sense? No. <laughs> Thank you. I love it when I get a no. Let me have um, a sip of coffee and uh, yeah. we'll think again. Hmm. 
maybe if I explain while you're taking a sip there, I know for a lot of women who have gone through abuse, they have mm-hmm. to stop listening to what a person says in a sense and start li- watching what they do. Like people tell you in their actions who they are. Yeah. So I was trying to see if you also had to do that because of what was happening in your mind. No, like, as I said, when you're in relationships and someone says, I'm never going to do that to you. You hear that so often in your life from family, friends, work colleagues. But for some reason, when she said to me, I've got you, it melted away. The trust was just there. And it's, it's a beautiful thing. It really is. The connection we have together is I've never felt that connection before with anyone, family, friends, woman, regardless. I think what you're telling me with what's happening inside your mind is very different than someone who's experienced abuse. So it's a different tool. Mm. There's a different spin on on maybe even a similar tool. Yeah. That Because it sounds like most of the negativity is happening in your mind and not Correct. outside of you. It's almost like a defense mechanism. Like the brain is expecting betrayal. Okay. So it's trying to defend itself and getting ready to run because it's so used to it. I mean, that's been my life response throughout my whole life. When things go wrong, I run. I've always been a runner. And learning not to run and learning to face the situation, whatever it is, it's been a journey to get there. But I am there. I'm trusting a lot more these days. And trust is is not something you take for granted either when someone trusts you. But yeah. It's been a journey, but it doesn't define me. It's just a part of who I am, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I totally get that. I think I'm starting to get a better understanding of what it's like for you in your mental challenges in that most of them are in here. And it's not because of anything that was done to you. It's just how your brain works. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. There was things that set the fear of abandonment in, in motion. My father leaving when I was one, which I'd never thought of before. I met the therapist for the first time. I've had a few women cheat on me in high school and in early adult life. And so add all those together, a few friends betrayed me in high school. Just stuff that happens in life. It's nothing extraordinary. I haven't faced trauma that anyone else has, you know, hasn't faced. But those things just got to me. And that's what started me down the road to the fear of abandonment. But as I said, it's just part of the journey. And yeah. I love that it that you see it as simply part of the journey because I think that we all struggle, we all have challenges. Agreed. And yeah, if my thought is if I look at it from a victim perspective, it's very different from looking at it from the perspective you're looking at it from of saying, Well, this is part of the journey and that's why I'm here (laughs) is Mm. to learn and grow. That's what I'm getting from you. Is that what your belief is as well? Or what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean When I was at my worst, people say things get better. I've had a lot of people say things will get better. But when you're in that dark space, when you're down in the dumps, you don't think of that. You don't see that. People will say to you, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. But you can't see that light because you're not looking at the end of the tunnel. You're looking at the wall. It's all black as the train goes through. But, you know, it does. It's all about, like, my author coach, she says to me, she feels very strongly about depression and anxiety. She's gone through a lot of trauma in her life. And she says it's a choice. Now, when I first heard her say that, I was like, what? Depression? A choice? What are you, mad? But then she explained it to me. She said, no, no, you don't have a choice whether you get anxiety and depression, but you do have a choice to reach out and ask for help. And that got me thinking. I thought, hmm, I see where she's getting at now. I see where she's coming from. And it it is a choice. It's a choice to stay in that dark place or a choice to get out of it. 
not an easy choice when you're in that dark place. It's really not. No, I've got to, I think everyone who makes that choice deserves a, a trophy, <laughs> which yeah. is everyone on this planet, right? Like yeah, at some point, I think that most people will have a struggle that brings them to their knees. Yeah. And so when you started reaching out, which it sounds like you were pretty open to yeah. when Christine said, which is fantastic. Mm. And do you think that you were that much more open to it because of what's happening in New Zealand, because of what you hear on social media with mental health and things like that? I just, I didn't want to feel that way anymore. I didn't want to sit in a gutter when I should have been delivering mail crying. It just, yeah. I mean, it's funny because I was talking to my brother the other day about it. And as I said before, in that sort of job where your mind's got a lot of time, there was a lot of, in my branch alone, there was quite a few posties that suffered from mental health issues. And it's just having that free time for the mind to wander while you're doing your round and delivering mail. But, you know, we found ways, we helped each other and we got through it. Well, most of us did. Some <laughs> had to get other jobs because it was it's, it's a great job in the summer, especially. But as I said, too much time for the mind. So that's why I try and go to jobs where I'm active in the brain. Because the more active you are in your brain, Correct. then the less you're in those thoughts. Yeah, just, I don't want to leave room to move for those thoughts. So I try and keep my brain active all the time or focus on something. I mean, I'm in construction now. I had a lifetime in hospitality, bars, restaurants, hotels. And so that sort of job, you are active in the brain because you're having conversations with customers and it's a good way to focus the brain. Construction, usually, yes, there's a lot of, a lot of time where your brain's active, but there are jobs in my daily life that the brain has got time to wander. And I just use those times to switch off and think of my books and my writing, the next plot, the next character. So it's another way I keep my mind busy. We'll okay, so as, you're, as you start going to the negative thoughts, it sounds like you shift your mind to mm. thinking about these other things that Correct. are fun. more. <laughs> yeah, more fun. <laughs> Fantastic. I love that. I love that. And I'm thinking, I mean, you said that it was while you were delivering mail. In my mind, I always thought of that as somewhat of a, you'd have to work. And now that you're saying it, though, the mail's divided by the time it gets to you. You're not we, having to process. We sort it in the morning in this country. So we all sort our own round. We spend the first two to four hours in the office sorting it into order. Then you pick it all up and go out and deliver it. That's how we do it here. And like... Postie in New Zealand back then, or a postal officer, you ride past the letterbox without stopping and putting the mail in the box. That's how we do it so quickly. So you're riding along the footpath, next letterbox, bang, letters in, you carry on, you don't stop. The only time you stop is when there's a parcel or something to go in the back. So after a few years, when you get into the job and you know it well and you know that round very well, it's just automatic. You're not thinking about it, you just where you go. Yeah. Okay. Which makes sense because it's like any new thing at first you're yeah. having to work really hard to learn it. So the brain is working mm. really hard. And then once you've got it down, mm. you don't have to think about it as much. Yeah. I mean, I used to listen to music on the round. Unfortunately, you weren't allowed to because it's a health and safety issue. You can't hear cars coming out of driveways and stuff, unfortunately, because it was a good job in the days when you could put your headphones on and just cruise along on your push bike, throwing mail in, in, in boxes. Yeah. Huh. Just never really had thought of it from that perspective before. So I love this idea of being a fantasy author. And I'm wondering, because my understanding of comedy is a lot of it mm. is in the surprise. Can be. Yeah. Yeah, it is. 
we're going to go this way. And all of a sudden we're yeah. in the street over there <laughs> and people are surprised. So do you think that on some level, because you had that open mind from comedy and getting used to, to shifting and being surprised that that was part of what made it easier to go get help and to be okay with the fact that you hadn't thought of it, the idea yourself and accepting when she came to you and said, oh, you might want to have a look at this. Well, when I seeked out help for mental health, I was 32 and I didn't start comedy until I was 38. So comedy came along a lot later. But the good thing is with comedy is you can talk about it on stage. I've stayed away about talking mental health on stage because in my home city, we have a comedian who specializes. That's his topic. He speaks about his mental health issues in his comedy. So you don't want to be another person doing it. But, you know, it's stand-up comedy is a good outlet. You can get your feelings out there. You've got to make it funny. You don't want to make it a TED talk or anything. But, yeah, it's a great outlet. And I was a performer at high school as well for high school musicals, stuff like that. So being on stage was very natural to me. It's a great zone to be in. Was it part of your healing then? No, it wasn't. For me, the comedy was just part of my personality. Just I felt I belonged on that stage. I mean, obviously, I'm taking a break from comedy at the moment because I'm writing these novels and I want to get them out. But I'll go back to it. I I, I want to finish that hour show and tour it around New Zealand. Yeah. And I'm betting you do get some comedic scenes in your books. I've not had a chance to read them yet. There is, but, I mean, it's a dark book, Slave Boy. It's about slavery and gladiator combat. And there is some funny scenes in there, but they're dark humour or black comedy. Like, it's very dark. I I can't spoil it. Most of the dark comedy is in the second book, which is at the proofreaders at the moment. But there are some funny scenes, and I have used comedy a couple of times, but it's not that type of book. It's it's about slavery. It's about a five-year-old boy that, you know, was taken from his family and and thrust into slavery in another country and then had to fight for his life day in, day out in the pits. Hmm. Which... To me, makes me think of mental health and how sometimes mm. it's that day in and day out fight in the pit, right? Mm. I mean, the characters, two of the main four, suffer from mental health issues. The lead character, Demon Boy, that is his name, he suffers from anger problems and rebellion and a little bit of overthinking. His best friend, Bulldog Boy, he suffers from anxiety, overthinking, irrational behavior. And you see it a little bit in book one. And in book two, it re- even though they're growing older, those problems start to surface a lot more and affect their judgment on what they're doing in the book. But I mean, the characters are on a journey, just like we all are. And they will heal because you have to heal. There's no yeah. point of not healing. You don't want to sit in that zone forever. So the yeah. books have been a great outlet for that, actually. I bet. I bet. I'm just thinking of reading fantasy books and how much we learn from the characters and how much mental health and who we are. And Mm. I mean, as authors and as readers, I'm an avid reader. I love to read. So how much knowledge actually we gain from these fictional books. It's interesting because I mean, the reason I didn't find sci-fi fantasy until I was about 22 and I never looked back because when I'm reading or watching a movie, I like the escapism. I want something that's so fantastical that it's not happening in real life. I want a break from reality. That's why fantasy and sci-fi kind of, I get it. And it's my thing. It's, it's what drives me. So that's when I write fantasy. It's, I want to give other people that escapism. I mean, don't get me wrong. There's some strong themes in the first book. Like it is 
without realizing what I'd done, I'd, I'd created a book about brotherhood mm-hmm. for young men. And brotherhood is something that's very important for men. We need to feel a part of that brotherhood on so many different levels. I mean, that's why a lot of young men in this country go to gangs. Perhaps they've had a broken home. They're not getting the same kind of family time and they're looking for a brotherhood. Not all of them. Some of them are just extremely violent and like being criminals. But yeah, so the book is about brotherhood and and that's so important, especially to for men that have mental health. They need to feel a part of something like that. So do you have a group available at this point yet for your for followers of your book? I have a page on Bookface. Uh, sorry, Facebook. I call it Bookface. Called Demok <laughs> Chu Series. There's a few things in there about the whole series, but unfortunately, I haven't had a lot of time to focus on that page. So Instagram, Nathan Bright, is the easiest way. I mean, as I said, I put up videos every couple of weeks called Sharing the Journey, and that's a real big insight to how I'm feeling or what I'm writing or updates on the book and asking questions of the fans saying, what do you think? And um, starting to get a bit of feedback. I get people saying, hey, I've got this question about your book. Can you answer it for me? And so I do a video. I want to be available to the reader. And so I've got that as a group, I suppose, I have a good friend who runs a men's support group here in Christchurch. Unfortunately, because of, I work very long hours in construction, I haven't had a chance to get along. But, you know, those outlets are there and they just get together around a bonfire, have a beer and talk about being men in, in a positive way. And it is so important for men to be able to have that opportunity with other men. Yeah, I think that especially in today's world, even with social media, the connection is mm. so important. Yes, especially in person. Yeah. And which of course was made much harder by COVID. Yes. <laughs> I'm going to thank Zoom that I can visit with people on the computer. Yeah, fortunately New Zealand we only had 5 weeks of lockdown. So it wasn't too bad for us. It wasn't months after month after month. Yeah, which so. in the states it was very different. Okay, so three tips or tools that you would like readers to have or things that maybe helped you during your journey through mental health? Stop and breathe. That's the first tip. Second tip would be ask for help. Not easy, especially when you're in that dark place to reach out to someone. And three, it does get easier. Once you get the knowledge and the tools, it gets easier. It's not always going to be like this. I mean, yes, with mental health, it's a journey and it's always there. There's no cure for mental health. It's always going to be there, but it gets easier because you learn how to deal with it. When you said that, I pictured standing at that wall with the train coming by in the tunnel, mm-hmm. staring at the wall and slowly turning toward the light and it mm-hmm. becoming a pinprick at first. And then just each step that the, yeah. the light getting brighter and brighter and before you're out of the tunnel, it's not that the tunnel doesn't exist or that there's not going to be another tunnel. It will happen and you'll have t- new tools for the next one. Getting those tools, recognizing the triggers, that's all very, very important. And also having a good support base. It's not easy for everyone because not everyone's in a position where they are surrounded by loving friends and family. Fortunately, I was surrounded by some loving, a small circle that realized, okay, I say no. Most invites when they ask me out, but they recognize that they still ask me. Even though they know I'm going to say no, they still ask me. They still try and include me. And then once in a while, I'd love to come out. So having that support network who realize that the connection is so important, it's just brilliant. I've been yeah. very fortunate in who I'm surrounding myself with. So I'm going to say that's a fourth tip. Make sure you're surrounding yourself with safe people. Correct. And that is a very good tip because 
there may be people in your life that you need to cut out. It's, it's, it's something I do every few months. I go from my Facebook and, okay, I go from a friends list and say, what value are they adding to me? Have they contacted me? Are they bringing me down in any way, shape, or form? I went from 400 friends two years ago to 160. Okay. Just from doing Carl's because they just didn't match with where I was. And you've got to have the right people in your circle, in your life. If you've got people bringing you down or, yeah, sometimes you have to cull. Not easy, but refreshing at the same time. It's empowering. Yeah, and what I heard from you there is making sure that your social media is safe for you as well. Correct. And you know what? Staying off social media when you're in that dark place is also another good tip. I mean, a lot of us make decisions when we're emotionally charged, and nine times out of ten, it's a bad decision you make when you're emotionally charged so that was one of the things i focused on was when i'm in that place of darkness i never make a decision a major decision obviously deciding what you have for dinner fine deciding you're going to quit your job no you wait until you're out of the dark place never make decisions when you're charged you know i am so grateful to have gotten to have a conversation with you a lot i would say i've interviewed more women than men and I love the fact that you are you are lending a voice to men. And I really hope that more men find the strength to say, ooh, this is hard. I need help. And then to share their journey so that other men yet can say, mm-hmm. yes, I've been there too. And yes, I want to get better. Yeah, I mean, that's what I said with like all the television advertisement campaigns that New Zealand government pays for and stuff. It's a range of campaigns, all from mental health issues, and it's okay to ask for help. And then issues on family violence, where you've got these big, massive guys who used to be violent fathers, who are now saying, hey, guys, this is not right, ask for help across the whole spectrum. So we're very fortunate here. Yeah, I think that's fantastic. And New Zealand, from what I understand, is pretty a small country, right? So Yeah, we're only 5 million people. That's, you know, that's still a lot when I'm talking about one person. But, you know, to have your voice really go around the world to help other men reach yeah. out and to say, you know what, it's okay. This is normal. And I think that's fantastic. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you so much for coming on to Relatively Damaged. I'm so glad I get to have you here today. Thank you so much for letting me come on and have a chat about life's little hiccups. Oh, yeah, for sure. And if you guys haven't heard us say it, go out and and get the book Slave Boy. There's a little bit of dark humor, and you might learn a little bit more about Nate's Brian there. Definitely will. Thank you so much. If you want to share your relatively damaged story of struggle and how you found hope, visit us at damagedparents.com and complete the contact form. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Relatively Damaged by Damaged Parents. We really enjoyed talking to Nath about how he was able to reach out and find tools to help with his mental health. We especially liked when he explained how he used a switchboard in his mind to turn on and off certain behavior. To unite with other damaged people, connect with us on Facebook, look for Damaged Parents. We'll be here next week, still relatively damaged. See you then.